The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning. All right, the scripture reading for today is going to be coming from Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 24. And while some were speaking in the temple, how it was adorned with the noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things you see, the days will come when there will be none left here, um, one stone upon another, that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what, sign, what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after him, after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first. But the, end will not, but the end will not be at once. He said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up in synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, be- settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom. For none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and uh, relatives um, and friends. And some of you will be put to death. You will uh, be hated by all for my name's sake. But not, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you will know that its desolation has come near. Then then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For uh, For these are the days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women... Who are pregnant, and for those who are uh, nursing infants in those days, for there will be, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against its people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, until the, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is God's word. Uh, I just want to ask a quick question. Anybody ever got bad information, uh, driving directions, anything like that? So I was talking to a buddy of mine this week, and we go back. uh, We were friends since my freshman year of college. And uh, at the time, Becca and I were dating, and um, he came to me. We had just broken up, and which you have to break up at least once, I think. And so uh, we had just broken up, and he comes to me, real serious, and he says, 
I don't know how to tell you this, but I've just talked to one of Becca's friends. She has no interest in you whatsoever. The breakup is final. You need to move on. I was just crushed, right? Just, uh, oh. Obviously, that guy was wrong. You know the rest of the story. Uh, but for me personally, it was, it was very difficult because the information that we get or we receive, we input, directly affects our emotions, how we think, what's our worldview, how we uh, feel about things. And I was reminded of that also. I uh, just finished a Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, biography. And I'm not generally much on history, but it was really good. And uh, realizing that during the time of FDR's presidency, there was uh, Hitler, uh, Stalin, Mussolini, Winston Churchill. And there's like the who's who of your uh, you know, history books. And in war, the smallest piece of misinformation can be deadly. The, the, the wrong day, at the wrong time, in the wrong way, can result in casualties. And the truth is, as Christians, the misinformation that we have can result in spiritual tragedies. And so it becomes vitally important that we think well about how to interpret Scripture. Because the Bible is everything that we need for life, for hope, for our future, for our past. It provides all that we need. It is the fulfillment and the full revealed will of God until we meet him. And so it becomes really important that we interpret it well. And so uh, if you brought a visitor today, I'm sorry, uh, as you can read from the text. We do something here called consecutive expository preaching, which means we just work right through a book. So I didn't pick this text. Luke did about 15, 1800 years ago. So we'll be talking about the end of the world. And... Um, I think what's important is that this is a, one of three gospel accounts. We see it in Matthew chapter 24. We see it in uh, Mark chapter 13 as well. And it, it, there's a lot of questions that are raised both uh, just out of curiosity, theologically, and we won't have time to answer all of the questions that will be raised. And as you'll find, if you try to pursue me with questions afterwards, I probably wouldn't have all the answers anyway. So we're going to do our best to uh, walk through this. Today's sermon is going to look a little different if you've spent any time here uh, in the past. I think what will serve us best is I'll spend a fair amount of time just explaining the text and then have a very pointed and specific time of application at the end. It'll be a little different for us, but I think it will work best as we try to um, because at the end of the day... uh, It says all scripture is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. And so there is something here for us to learn. I believe several things. Um, Let me just pray, um, and, uh, and we can dive right in, okay? Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your providence, you brought us here, that your hand, your life-giving hand is on each one of us, or that you're familiar with all of our ways, Uh, that uh, the moment your son was hanging on the cross, you were aware that on this day, in this city, at this time, 
we would be considering these things. Lord, this is a complicated text, but it's a, an encouraging text. Lord, it's a, a difficult text in places, but it's one that can push us to see you in a bigger way. Would you give me the words to say, or would you give our hearts clarity and precision as we try to interpret your word? We ask these things in your name. Amen. So keep in mind, we are working through the gospel of Luke, and just let's pause for a second and kind of, this scripture sometimes feels a little abrupt, like it's just oddly placed. Um, But where we are in the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and even in the Lord's life, so everything, as Randy mentioned last week, in the gospel of Luke at this point is is heading towards Calvary. It's it's going to the crucifixion. And so since Luke chapter 9, where it says that Jesus turned his face towards Jerusalem, all the momentum is building. And we see that in the gospel. And so this conversation here takes place on either Monday or Tuesday of Holy Week. So uh, Jesus would have already come in in the triumphal entry, and he's in Jerusalem teaching in the temples. And this is a massive crowd in Jerusalem. It's almost as if everyone had converged on the capital city for Passover. They were celebrating and remembering God's faithful delivery of the uh, Israelites from the Egyptian slavery. And so Jesus, it says, is going in the temple by day and teaching. And then at night, at least on Monday night and Tuesday night, he's retreating out of the city. He's leaving the city, spending the night somewhere else. And so the, the text here gives us some sort of gospel imagery that what it would have been like is Jesus and his disciples spend a long day in the temple teaching. And then they're leaving. It's probably late in the evening, maybe dusk. And they walk up the Mount of Olives, this particular text, also in Matthew and Mark, is known as the Olivet Discourse. And that's simply because it was given on the Mount of Olives. And so as they're retreating from the city, they're talking casually about the day's events, uh, and they're able to look off to their east, and they see the temple, probably with a sunset behind it, and they're able to observe it, and it becomes a point of conversation. So this Luke 21 is a very natural flow in the book of Luke, and it's also a natural flow in the conversation that the disciples would have been having. So keep in mind, the disciples, most of them are very poor, uneducated, unassuming men from very small towns. So the temple would have been the most magnificent building that they have ever seen. The temple was first built by King Solomon about a thousand years prior, and it was then destroyed by the Babylonians, when the Israelites were exiled. And so from there, uh, they were able to come back from exile and rebuild the temple. But it was a small shell of what it used to be. And so King Herod the Great, in 20 BC, decided he wanted to take on a decades-long renovation project. And so he spent literally 30, 40, 50 years rebuilding the temple to what it is today what it was in the day of the disciples, rather. And so as they're looking at it, and we see here in verse 5, it says, and and let me just make this, if you have your Bibles, it will be really helpful to follow along. We're going to spend a lot of time looking at the text and proving and interpreting the text with the text, okay? Uh, 
Pick up with me in verse 5, if you see that. It says, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. Uh, Archaeological facts show that the stones that were used to build the temple weighed over a million pounds each. They were 42 feet long. They were about 14 feet high and 11 feet in depth. They're just absolutely massive stones. And so uh, the temple covered a a sixth of the Jerusalem square footage as a city. It was made up of 30 acres. And so the temple was a central part of the city of Jerusalem. It was a central part of the Jewish life, the Jewish culture. And it would have been something that would have been awe-inspiring to people. You know, we're not really used to, we live in Myrtle Beach, so unless you go cruise on the... uh, uh, What's the highway right by the beach? The boulevard. Lived here a decade. I should know that. Thank you. It's participation. I appreciate it. Those are the only places we really see tall buildings or buildings of any structure or size. And so these disciples, this would have been without question the most magnificent building they would have ever seen. And so it would have been very natural for them to comment on it. And so what happens is they're a little taken back by what Jesus says here, because if you if you spend any time reading Luke or any of the other Gospels, Jesus very rarely speaks directly and plainly. He seems to love paradox, uh, paradoxical speaking, parables, metaphors. And so for some reason, Jesus decides just to kind of unload on the disciples here. And they really don't know what to do with it. So uh, starting in verse 6, we see that They're adorning and looking at the temple, the disciples. And here's what Jesus says. As for those things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus tells them everything that you're admiring, everything that you're looking at will be destroyed. The stones weighed a million pounds each. You could imagine there was... A lot of confusion. What do you mean? And so immediately the disciples asked two questions. And these are the two questions that we're going to answer in the text. Number one, when will this happen? And number two, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? So question number one, when is the temple going to be destroyed? Number two, what is going to be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Matthew's gospel asks those questions a little more clearly than Luke's does, but it's the same uh, account, and the disciples have the same intention here. And so what's interesting about Jesus' response is he spends a lengthy amount of time separating the two questions because, uh, and we see this throughout all of Scripture, the disciples and the Jews had a difficult time when it concerned prophecy discerning which prophecies are fulfilled at your first coming and which prophecies are fulfilled at your second coming. They saw everything working together. That's why on the way into the city, the expectation was that Jesus was there to overthrow the Roman government and establish a political kingdom on earth. And Jesus said, no, that's not what my first coming is. And so Jesus spends the next 30 verses explaining and answering the two questions. And so immediately we, we saw red uh, in verse 9, we see that there will be uh, wars. And 
I can't say that word. I always grew up with the version rumors of wars. So tumults, tumults, tumults. Here of wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines in verse 11. They will persecute you in verse 12. You'll be put to death. Friends, this could be a description of every place leading up to the return of Christ, couldn't it? Not really. It may be easier for us to try and read our Bibles that way. But Jesus is much more specific with this text. And we see that in verses 24 where he says that after these things take place, you will be led captive out of your city and then the time of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. So it's a specific and appointed time frame that Jesus is talking about. So what we see in verses 5 through 24, Jesus is answering the disciples' first question, which is, when will the temple be destroyed? Jesus is referencing something called the abomination of desolation. And Luke, who's preaching to a largely Gentile group, which is what we are, we would have been unfamiliar, they would have been unfamiliar with what that meant, so he just references it as desolation. It's the destruction of the temple. It it was prophesied in Daniel chapter 9 for the first time. And what it was, was uh, first fulfilled by uh, a Roman emperor named Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 BC. He walked in to the Holy of Holies, which is the place where God's presence dwelled, and he slaughtered a pig, and he desecrated the highest and most regarded place in all of Jewish culture. And so Jesus, as he's telling the disciples of this coming destruction, of this coming desolation, he would have had that in mind. And the disciples, who even though they're uneducated, are still Jewish men. They would have known exactly what desolation Christ was referencing here. So what are we to think? Because nowhere, at least in my New Testament, is there anything regarding the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, an abomination of desolation. Has this happened yet? Will it happen? Is it going to happen? Was Jesus mistaken? Was he speaking in metaphors and parables? What what did he mean? Well, It did, in fact, happen. And something called the Jewish War, which took place from 67 to 70 AD, and it culminated with the Roman army led by the general uh, Titus destroying Jerusalem and the temple. And why this is important, a Jewish historian named Josephus said this, it appears to me that the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world, if they compare to those of the Jews, are not so considerable as they were. It was horrible. 1.1 million Jews were killed in the Jewish war from 67 to 70 AD. Almost 100,000 people were taken as slaves. They were crucifying Jews at a rate of 500 a day. It was, without question, 
the Roman historian Tacitus describes it as a war of almost supernatural proportions. Josephus, in some of his later writings, said, any man or woman that would observe what the Jews endured, it would bring tears to their eyes. He writes of one story that it was so bad that mothers and fathers were selling their children for food. And one mother in particular killed her son and cooked him so that she could eat and hid half of his body so that she could preserve and have food for later in the the war season. It was terrible. It's hard for us to grasp the kind of atrocity and the kind of evil that took place in those days. But here's what's interesting. Even with over a million Jews killed, the Christian Eusebius, a first century Christian, writes, almost no Christians were killed. How's that possible? We know from the book of Acts that there were thousands of Christians in Jerusalem. That's where Pentecost took place. That's where the church began to expand and grow. And it's because the Christians of those days would have read and would have obeyed Jesus' words. Pick up with me in verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are inside and let those who are out in the country enter it. Friends, historical accounts show that Simeon, the cousin of Jesus, was one of the chief leaders that led massive amounts of Christians out of Jerusalem and preserved their life. Taking a step back for a moment, we would do well, wouldn't we, to heed the words of Christ with the same enthusiasm that they did? What would our lives look like if we took Christ at his word the same way that the first century Christians did? Moving beyond questions of history into questions of theology, why would God do this? Why would God destroy the focal and central point of his chosen people's cultural and spiritual existence? Why would he do that? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, 1,500 years prior to the destruction of the temple, Moses lays out a covenant inspired by God to the people of Israel. And Deuteronomy 28 gives two options for the, the Israel nation. It says, number one, there will be blessings for your obedience. You will be my people and I will be your God. And if you obey me and you observe my commands and my statutes and hold me above all other gods, there will be blessings for your obedience. In the second half of Deuteronomy 28, there will be cursings for your disobedience. And the language used in some of the results were that there would be sieges, disease, fever, captivity, deportation, starvation, all of which occurred in A.D. 70. 
And in fact, one chapter later, in Deuteronomy 29, Moses prophesied that the Israelites would indeed disobey and that judgment would come. That's what Jesus means here in verse 22. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Friends, the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem was God's holy and righteous judgment on his disobedient, adulterous people. This is what's known in in theological terms as the divorce of Jerusalem. Now praise God that if you're a Christian today, we don't have to worry about the judgment of God. We don't have to be concerned with his wrath being poured out. We don't have to be concerned with him divorcing us. That there is nothing that we can say or do if we are in Christ that can ever separate us from his love. That's Romans chapter 8. Friends, everything that we need for God's pleasure has been sealed and locked safe in Christ's finished work for us. And although this judgment was holy and it was just and it was right, that judgment is not coming for you or I. Praise God for that. Because it takes me about five minutes to identify the things that I do that are as bad or worse than the disobedience of the Israelites. So I am deserving, you are deserving of God's full wrath. But we've been spared from that. I think it's easy to look at chapter 20 and see a bunch of irony. The the chosen people of God, unchosen. The, The place of God's chief peace and presence, the temple, now becomes the place of his chief wrath. That the the people that are his treasured possession, set apart as a royal priesthood, are now the the adulterous murderers that yell, crucify him, crucify him. Friends, we know that Jesus is the true and better temple. He is now the place where God's presence dwells. And we have total and complete access to him. We have a benefit that our brothers and sisters in the Old Testament did not have. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. It's easy in a historical sense, at least for me, to point fingers at the, at the Jewish nation, call out their disobedience. But I wonder, you know, because the temple was the, it was the hope of the Jewish people. It represented God's presence and peace, and it was destroyed. Imagine what in your life, if it was destroyed, would crush your hope. I don't have an answer for myself yet. 
But just as Jesus is being lifted high, even in God's judgment, to turn the Jewish people's eyes from the temple as their chief source of hope, to Christ, he's doing the same thing for us today. At this point in the text, verses 5 to 24, Jesus has clearly answered the first question that the disciples asked. When will these things happen? And so at some point over the next several verses, Jesus moves from answering the first question to now answering the second question. What will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Some commentators think that uh, Jesus picks up in verse 25. Others think that maybe it's verse 34. But regardless of whether Jesus begins to answer their question about what will be the sign of, of your coming and what will be the signs of the end of the age, whether it's verse 25 or verse 33, it's very, very clear at what Jesus is intending to say to his people. If we notice here, in verse 30, really 29 through 33, Jesus describes a parable of the fig tree. And his aim is describing that as a, as a fig tree blooms, as you can tell when summer's coming, when winter's here, you will be able to tell when these things will take place. But what's clear throughout all of Scripture is that no man knows the day or the hour of Christ's second return. And so let me just give you a couple of scriptures for the point of reference here, if you don't believe me. Luke 17, 28 through 30 says, it will be like the days of Lot, referencing Sodom and Gomorrah, when they are eating and drinking and then sudden destruction occurs. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 tells us that people will be thinking to themselves that we are in a time of peace and sudden destruction will occur. Matthew chapter 24, 36 through 38 says, No one knows, not even the angels or the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. So Jesus had a very clear exhortation and instruction to the disciples concerning their first question. When will the temple be destroyed? And he has one very clear instruction about his second coming. Is that it comes like a thief in the night. There, there were signs and, and, and things pointing to his uh, the judgment and destruction. But his second coming will come quickly And swiftly. And so let me be very clear. And I'm pulling this from Jesus' words in Matthew, Mark, and here in Luke, verses 34. But watch yourself. Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Friends, we are not waiting on a people group in the middle of the African jungle to be saved. We are not waiting on a one world government. We are not waiting on a particular man or any particular circumstance. 
Christ has opened up all of history. And there is nothing that we are waiting on. Christ can return at any moment in time. And his instruction to his disciples and his instruction to us is watch yourselves lest you be weighed down. One of the parables that he uses in Matthew and even in Mark, it says, what servant, not knowing when his master will return, goes to sleep? But I'm often embarrassed at how often, as a Christian, I fall asleep. So I think what's helpful now, as Jesus has answered their first question and their second question, what are five points of application or conclusions that we can unequivocally draw from Luke chapter 21? So I have five of them, and then we'll be finished. Number one, we ought to know our Bibles. We ought to know our Bibles. If our Bible is the baseline for truth, it's our foundation of our worldview, of what we think about right and wrong, it tells us how to process joy and tragedy. Yet I'm amazed in my own life how little I've attended to my own soul by feeding it God's word. We have to know our Bibles because there are a number of false teachers. There are a number of, there there are people claiming to be Christians in this area that refute that Jesus Christ actually physically rose from the dead. There are Christians in all of our circles that claim that there is no hell. There are Christians who claim that homosexuality is not a sin. Friends, the only way that we can know what God says about right and wrong is if we know our Bibles. Point number two. We ought to be careful then how we live. I think Matthew chapter 7 is one of the scariest verses in the Bible. And it says, many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not perform all these miracles in your name? And he will say to them, depart from me for I never knew you. Friends, we ought to watch how we live so that whether Christ comes tomorrow, before we finish today, or a thousand years from now, that he looks at each of us and says, job well done, good and faithful servant. Point number three. We need to understand that the judgment that is coming is far worse than what took place in AD 70. That if you are not a Christian, if you don't trust on Christ as your substitute, as your right standing before God, that there is a judgment that is coming 
that is unspeakably worse than what took place in AD 70. And if you're here, you can settle that dispute today. You, you can make right that wrong today. That the, the God of this universe, who is the judge of all the earth, stands before you offering you an unprecedented plea bargain. Trust in Christ and go free. Friend, you can settle that today. Will you? Because if you don't, the Bible is very, very clear. We see it in Hebrews chapter 9. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Will you trust in Christ's finished work so that you stand before a holy God? bathed in the splendor and finished work of Jesus. Number four. For the Christian, the end will be better than the beginning. You know, as a, as a culture, we are fairly obsessed with starting new things or owning new things, whether it's a starting a new job, a a new diet, a new TV show, uh, uh, getting a new car. Quite frankly, I think I'm checking all those myself, any of those of you know me. Uh, I love starting new things. TV shows, diets, everything. (laughs) That is so true. Because we have a sense of optimism, right? At the beginning of something, there's this sense that a hope a sense of optimism of what reality might be in the future. We're very hopeful when we start new things. But the Bible says something a little different. Ecclesiastes 7, 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. John Bloom, who's a a writer and a professor, goes on to describe it this way. That... When a person passes away or a a crop is harvested, we can clearly see who they actually were and who they actually became. Or we can look at the crops and see what fruit was actually produced. We have a benefit at the end of something to look back and to know what really was. Because for all of the hope, and this is Bloom, all of the hope that beginnings offer, it is in a sense a false reality. And for the Christian, our end will be far, far better than our beginning. We can go back to the book of Exodus and see a a sort of preview that the beginning of life with a holy God for the Israelites was marked by trial, suffering, persecution, slavery, marching through the desert for 40 years. But the end of that journey ended in the promised land. Which brings me to my fifth point. Christians ought to have a heavenly gaze. 
if you are a Christian, lift your head high because your future, our future is bright, it is secure, it is safe, and it is hopeful. Whether we have much or we have little, in the same way that the Israelites stood on the banks of the Jordan River and looked out over into Canaan, the promised land. The song goes, we are bound, we are bound, we are bound for the promised land. Friends, we can lift our head in that direction. We can lift our eyes to that future place. And whether we have much, we have none, we have tragedy, or we have joy, we can be hopeful. And we can be hopeful that Christ has purchased, made an irreversible transaction for that hopeful future. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for your goodness, that even a a passage that can be as complicated or as in-depth or as difficult as Luke chapter 21 can produce fruit. Lord, it can produce hope. It can be used to help us see our sin, where we fall short of watching our own souls. but it can also encourage us that we are no longer under your wrath, but under your full pleasure. Would you minister to your saints this morning? Would you give us a sense of sober-mindedness, a sense of encouragement, a sense of hopefulness, but more importantly, would you fasten our souls to the cross of Christ and we would find today, tomorrow, next week our deepest and most full pleasure in you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.